Time to return to our series through Genesis. Our church is officially 43 years old now. And we praise God for His faithfulness to us in spite of us. We left off in chapter 5. We get a genealogy of the first ten patriarchs stretching from Noah to Adam. We took one week where we kind of did a flyover of this chapter and we just pointed out a few things. One was, why were they living so long before the flood? Probably doesn't help you get victory in your life, but it's interesting to know. Second thing was the reoccurring phrase, and he died. The only genealogy that says this, and it is to remind us of our need for Christ. The day is coming when we will die and we will stand before our Maker. It's the penalty of sin. God said, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And that's why Genesis 5 says this repeatedly as a reminder that God's word is true. And this is now the consequence of our sin. We have all inherited the sin nature of Adam. The third observation, it was along those lines, it, it was kind of a freebie that there might be a message in the meaning of the ten names here in chapter 5 when you put it all together. Long story short, it would read something like this. Man is appointed a mortal dwelling, but the praise of God shall descend, teaching that his death shall send forth to the lowly rest. And so we thank God that Christ came down and he did bring us rest for those who will receive him. After that, we took a week and we considered how Adam was created in the image and likeness of God here in the early part of chapter 5. We're told that again, but of significance is when Seth is born, it says that Seth was born in the image and likeness of Adam. And so we, we find the fall of man and how sad our condition went from being created in the image and likeness of God. That was God's intent that if they were to have children, it were to be in the image and likeness of God because we were in a sinless state at that point. But with sin, that can't happen. And so we are now born in the image and likeness of a sinner. Two righteous people can't produce a saved person, but two people will produce a lost person, a sinner in need of a Savior. And so what, what did we need? We needed God to robe Himself in flesh in the person of Christ to die on the cross for our sins that we might be born again. Why? Because we don't have that image anymore. We have to be born again. And then what happens? We are then being conformed into the image of Christ. And so God is bringing us back into what we should have been. And of course, once we get to glory, we will be as He is. What a day that will be. Amen. In the first Adam, we all die. But in the last Adam, we all can live. Last time, we considered Enoch who walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. He walked with God by faith. He had a testimony that he pleased God, and so God just took him on home without dying. That's a pretty good deal, amen? Maybe we're that generation. Whoop! That'd be all right with me to escape death. I mean, if you want to die, fine. We saw how we should strive to walk with God so closely that we are not. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. And as we walk with God and we closely walk with God, Hopefully there there starts to come the point when it is no longer I that lives, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave Himself for me. 
And that's what we want. We want to walk with God so close that we are not. How is that going to happen? God has to take us. He walked with God and he was not for God took him. God has to take over our ambitions, our life, our dreams, all those things. We have to give our entire life to God. And can that be said of you? Have you given him everything? Do you have the testimony that you please God? There's one more thing I want to draw out of chapter 5, but I'm going to save that for when we get to Noah in chapter 6. I want to talk about Noah here in chapter 5, but because chapter 6 opens by looking back and then brings us forward to Noah, I want to save Noah for when we get to Noah in chapter 6. I hope that made sense. I said Noah a lot, so hopefully you got all that. All right, let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Look with me and I'll read verses 1 through 7. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Wow. We have a first mention again. Obviously, this is the book of beginnings. In verse 4, we see the first mention of giants. There were giants in the earth in those days. Naturally, the question arises, were they really giants? Because it sounds like stuff of fairy tales. There's nothing wrong with the question because the term giant can be used in a number of ways. To be a giant, one doesn't have to be of huge stature just by the the term in, in general. We might say he was a giant of a man, indicating a man's character. We might say someone is a giant of the faith indicating that they are well-respected in how they walk with God and all of those things. That may be some of the meaning here as far as their being renowned and, and, and being of a place of position maybe, things like that. But if we believe the Bible, and we do, most of us believe the Bible here this morning. I don't want to give you the benefit of the doubt because you probably didn't even read it this week. But uh, Look, I didn't get to preach, all right? It's been a while. We believe the Bible, and we know the Bible teaches that there were definitely giants in the earth in those days. Um, And and so these were men of great height and great bulk. And so you don't have to picture like a tall and lanky fella, like somebody playing basketball who's 7'7", but they could hide behind the microphone. You know, I'm not talking about that. We're talking about gigantic people here. And in Numbers 13, the ten spies, they they bring back word from the land, an evil report, the Bible says, and and it says they 
And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so were we in their sight, indicating the size of the people there. Deuteronomy 2 and verse 10, the, the Emmons dwelt therein in times past, a, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims. Deuteronomy 3.11, For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. It is, is it not in Rabbath of the children of Ammon? They had this thing on display, amen. Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it after the cubit of a man, which generally speaking would be somewhere about 13 and a half feet by six feet. That's a big old bed. Second Samuel 21.20, And there was yet a battle in Gath, where was a man of great stature, that had on every hand six fingers, and on every foot six, and on every foot six toes, four and twenty in number, and he also was born to the giant. So we read about giants in several places in the Old Testament, and what you'll find is that these were such powerful men that they carried very heavy weapons. Most famous, we think of Goliath. He had a coat of mail that weighed about 200 pounds going into battle. That's pretty, that's something. As I was studying, I kept picturing one of those baby carriers with a 200-pound man on it. I mean, imagine carrying that into battle. Anyway, Goliath was nearly 10 feet tall. If a cubit is 18 inches. It's about 10 feet. So yes, according to the Bible, there were giants in the earth in those days. So next, the question is, how did these giants come into existence? Part of your answer may depend on how you read the first half of verse 4. Some see this as saying giants had already been around even before the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men because of how it reads. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men. I see room for that thought personally. But certainly this is one of those passages which has sparked a lot of debate. Unfortunately, in recent times, it's like in the last century, it's caused very heated debate where people will actually be foolish enough to part company over it. And that's very disappointing because this is not a topic worth separating over. For those who may not know, the issue in this passage for some is who are the sons of God in verses 2 and 4. There are generally two prevailing opinions. Either they are fallen angels or they are human children of God like we would classify believers today. Now to my knowledge, this is not a topic that would affect any fundamental doctrines. I have yet to see any church put in their statements of faith how they feel about Genesis chapter 6, what we believe. So there's no need to start the First Baptist Church of those who feel very strongly about Genesis chapter 6. So why get so worked up over this? Well, all I can figure is haters going to hate. On a more serious note, people get all worked up about this and a host of other things because they like to be right. 
And so pride becomes the, the problem. Some of you may be wondering, well, preacher, are you going to give us your prideful opinion because you like to be right? And the answer is, of course. Yes. I didn't preach last week, so I'm in the mood to get controversial. I won't have the pride, though, because while I'm opinionated, I'm not going to say I'm dogmatic. Nor do I feel you have to agree with me on this issue in order to be in this church. We can have people on this side sit that are of the fallen angels and those on this side that think they're godly you know, believers. So my point is, let's not get divisive over something that's debatable. Now, I will say that while I'm not necessarily dogmatic, as of today, I'm pretty firm in my opinion. I have heard the reasoning from both sides, and there's men that I respect on both sides of the debate. And I still respect them. So if you don't agree with me, can we just agree to disagree without you leaving the church? With that, who are the sons of God spoken of here in Genesis 6? Are they human believers or are they fallen angels who enter married and reproduce with humans to cause the birth of giants? Drum roll, please. I am of the opinion that the sons of God here are not fallen angels. I was in a church once where a man felt so strongly about this issue, he wrote an entire book about it. And he gave me the book and he asked for my opinion. And while I disagreed with him in a lot of areas in his book, and really almost the entirety of it, I was thankful that he gave me the book because it caused me to study. And I like what Preacher Williams used to say, if I get you mad enough to study, then that's good. One of the major premises of his book was how the mixing together of two different species can cause a mutation where giants are the offspring. He claimed this was observable in the hybrid offspring of a male lion and a female tiger, which produces a giant cat known as a liger, which is bred for its skills and magic. It's pretty much my favorite animal. Some of you have no idea what that's probably. I attempted to point out to him a major flaw in his supposition. The problem is a lion and a tiger are of the same kind. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, God, he, he created animals after their kind. We are mankind. And the animals after their kind can reproduce with each other, while species of two separate kinds cannot reproduce. Therefore, you can have two different types of cats reproduced, but you can never have a dog and cat hybrid. As cool as that might be. Why? They're two different kinds. Just a quick side note, just because two different animals of the same kind can interbreed, it doesn't always produce a huge offspring like a liger. For example, a female horse and a male donkey produce a mule. But a mule is usually shorter than a horse. So where am I going with this? One of the main reasons I don't believe the sons of God here are fallen angels is because I'm of the opinion that humans and angels are two different kinds. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.39, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, 
and another of birds. So since there's only one kind of mankind, right? There's only one flesh, mankind. No other kind can produce with man and have this hybrid offspring mongrel race. David wrote in Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. In Hebrews chapter 2, just a little after it, quotes what Psalm 8 says. We read in Hebrews 2.16, For verily he, speaking of Jesus, took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So according to that passage, humans and angels have two different natures, which doesn't necessarily indicate two different kinds, but it certainly could. In Job 4, or in, in, yeah, in Job 4, there is another clear distinction between angels and mankind. In Job 4, verses 18 and 19, it says, Behold, he, speaking of God, behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly, how much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, or mankind, whose foundation is in the dust. So it seems clear from that passage that angels are not created from the same clay that man was. And to me, this seems to further indicate we are two different kinds and capable of producing a hybrid offspring. So being created as two different kinds is my main argument, but I have some other quick hit reasonings. We are told in verse 2 that the sons of God took them wives. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Jesus said angels don't marry. To, to be fair, one could say, well, Jesus is talking about the angels in heaven. And to that I say, fair enough, whatever. I think it's at least a noteworthy point. Now, those who believe these sons of God in Genesis 6 are fallen angels will say the reason, the, the reason fallen angels took the daughters of men unto them was because Satan had a strategy to corrupt the, the human race in order to prevent the promised seed from arriving. But the problem I have with this line of thinking is I believe the Bible teaches that Satan and demons cannot do anything beyond what God allows them to do. And I personally have a difficult time believing God would allow a hybrid between fallen angels and mankind to take place. In addition, many who believe fallen angels intermixed with humans also believe that their offspring would have been unsavable. And if that were true, then I believe God would be guilty of violating His promise of salvation to all who dwell upon the earth. Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. And if this hybrid race theory were true, and if it were true that they were unsavable, then why wouldn't Satan still seek to do this today? Why wouldn't he intermix so that you could have a child that couldn't be saved? Anyway, that theory just doesn't make sense to me. But the Messiah has arrived, but I think Satan would still want to prevent us from being saved. And if he can do that simply by intermixing with uh, the daughters of men, why not do that? Another thing I just can't get past is that these are called the sons of God. Why would God refer to the fallen angels as His sons? It just doesn't make sense to me logically. I don't think there's any place 
in the Scriptures where Satan or demons are ever called the sons of God. So why would He do so here? Another reason I don't think these sons of God are fallen angels is because the whole context here in Genesis chapter 6, and listen, what are we told? Context is everything. The whole context here in Genesis chapter 6 is all about mankind. And it is mankind that God is going to destroy. Notice in verse 3, God says, His spirit shall not always strive with man. In verse 4, the offspring of the sons of God and daughters of men were called mighty men, men of renown. In verse 5, God saw the wickedness of man, not angels. In verse 6, God repented that He had made man, not angels. And in verse 7, God will destroy man, not angels. In all of those references, the Hebrew word is never the word Nephilim, which is where the word giants is derived from in verse 4. And if the children born to them in verse 4 are not called Nephilim in the Hebrew, then why try to say the offspring are Nephilim? It says they're man. And I have to ask, if fallen angels are involved, then why would God destroy mankind and not the angels? Or if this was all a strategy of Satan, then why wouldn't He destroy the angels and not man? It seems kind of unfair to me. And I know our God is just. And it just seems unfair that God would say, I'm going to destroy all men. I, man, I'm, I'm just, I repent that I even made them when it was the angels who were taking the daughters of men if you believe they were fallen angels. It just doesn't seem very, uh, very prudent. So the angels are just as equally guilty if that's who they were. Now, why do I conclude that the sons of God are human believers instead? Well, let's not forget that chapter 4 ends with this phrase. Then began men to call upon the Lord, or the name of the Lord. Wouldn't those who call upon the name of the Lord be considered the sons of God, just like we are today? It makes sense to me. John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. So I believe that the natural flow from chapters 4 to 6 is the distinction between an ungodly line and a godly line. In chapter 4, we are given the ungodly line of Cain. And in chapter 5, we are given the godly line of Seth. And now in chapter 6, what are we told? The sons of God... Came, came in unto the daughters of men. It seems to me we're being told how the corruption of mankind is taking place by the intermarrying of believers and non-believers. See also America. We'll get to that later. You say later, aren't we ready to leave? Just pop the popcorn. Let me get through this. Now someone will rightly point out how believers are still marrying wicked sinners today and we don't see this, these giants in the earth now. And that's true. But I also don't see people living to be 900 years old either. So I don't know that that's a convincing argument. It could be that since this was before the law, this was one of the ways God chose to show the difference between holy and unholy. Because that's what the law was to do. Show the difference between holy and unholy, clean and unclean. Just a thought there, I don't know. Some will say, well, the judgment back then was so severe 
that God destroyed all mankind, all uh, land animals, all fowl, with a global flood. And this proves that it must have been something more than just godly people marrying ungodly people. And, and they'll ask, how come we aren't seeing this kind of judgment today then? And to that I say, just wait. Judgment is on the way. God will not use water the next time, but He will use fire. And Jesus said, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What did He say in Matthew 24, 38? For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And, and just an interesting side note, it is believed by many that the, the world's population at the time of the flood was between 7 to 8 billion people, which just happens to be about the world's population today. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the coming of the Son of Man. That's an interesting thought. How you could prove it, you can't. Now, understand, I could take a lot more time on this topic. We could talk about verses from Job, 2 Peter chapter 2, and the book of Jude. But can I try to get to a point that will benefit you coming here today? Because none of that helped you fight the devil. Amen. We see in verse 2 that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now you may recall while we were in chapter 4, there was only one daughter listed in Cain's line. And her name was Naamah, which means pleasantness, and it means she was beautiful. She was a beautiful woman from among the daughters of men, if you will. What do we see here in our text? The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, or they were attractive. Surely there were fair women among godly people. Amen, I got one. But this is here for a reason. We are meant to learn a valuable lesson in all of this and other passages that are dealing with this issue. God is very clear. Listen, if I lost you in all that nonsense about fallen angels and believe, tune me in. God is very clear that He doesn't want His people intermarrying with unbelievers. For those who are hoping to be married one day, it is never God's will for you to be married to an unbeliever. I don't care what good qualities they may have. I don't care how good looking they may be. I don't care how much they make you laugh or how wonderful you think they are. If they are lost, it is not God's will. If you decide to go ahead and go after an unbeliever, then you are flagrantly violating God's Word. Say, well, I think I might have done that. I might have married outside of God's will. You already gave your word. It's God's will now for you to stay married. Second Corinthians 6, I, I know the context isn't necessarily marriage, but certainly it applies. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. God gives the warning because when one is led by sight... Right? 
When you are led by sight in choosing your relationships, choosing anything for that matter in general, when you are led by sight, you are most likely heading for disaster. Joshua 7.21, Achan, he said, When I saw among the spoils of uh, a, a goodly Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and I took them. And behold, they're hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Cost him his life, his wife his life, his kids his life, and I think his grandchildren. I can't remember how far it went in that. He saw and he coveted. Judges 16.1, Then went Samson to Gaza and saw there an harlot. He saw her and he went in unto her, it says. Cost him his eyes. Cost him everything. He had a big problem. God knows the weakness of our flesh. How easily we can fall into the mire of sin if we choose by sight. And so we find several warnings in the Bible against yoking up with non-believers. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, speaking of the ungodly. Thy daughter, shall not, thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Why? For they will turn away the son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. And we don't have time, but you'll find similar warnings. Uh, Exodus 34, 16, Joshua 23, verses 12 and 13, Judges 3, 6 and 7, Ezra 9, 1 and 2, and Nehemiah 13, 23 through 27. When we are led by physical sight in a lustful manner, it turns our heart away from God because the eyes affect the heart. The sad commentary at the end of Solomon's life was how his heart was turned from God because he went after strange women, which means unbelievers. 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 3. But King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely they'll turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. You know what's sad about Solomon? The end of his life it says, and he did evil. In the sight of the Lord. The man that built the temple. And so what we find is mankind is easily corrupted when they are led by their physical sight. Remember that the process of sin entering the world all started when Eve saw that the tree was good for food. Well, Satan had come and said some things, but she saw that it was good for food. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes... And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Notice the second half of verse 2, which says, And they took them wives of all which they chose. They chose wives only by their eyesight. They saw the daughters of men that they were fair. They took all that they chose. Now, doesn't it seem 
Doesn't it seem to indicate that God would have liked, God would have chosen who they should have married? But they chose who they wanted. Seems like if we would just allow God to be in the process, He would help us. But they were being governed by their own will and not God's will. They desired the outward beauty of women over the desire for God. They didn't consider the character of these women. Their fleshly appetites overruled their devotion to God. They didn't consult with God. They didn't consult with godly parents. They didn't consult with godly people. It was all about what they wanted. It was all about fulfilling their own lust. They cared more about pleasing themselves than they did about pleasing God. Matthew Henry wrote, Professors of religion in marrying both themselves and their children should make conscience of keeping within the bounds of profession. The bad will sooner debauch the good than the good reform the bad. Those that profess themselves the children of God must not marry without His consent, which they have not if they join in affinity with His enemies. End quote. So listen to me. This issue is a big deal. These unholy unions were the source of extensive corruption. Society became more and more depraved as a result of the intermarrying of godly and ungodly. We may say more about this next time, but God said in verse 3, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Could it be that God is shortening the lifespans because the longer we live, the more we corrupt ourselves? Give man 900 years and see what he becomes. He'll come down the mountain, he'll intermix with the ungodly women that are down there. Look at how bad it got in verse 5. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it's amazing to me, get this, that all this depravity that is spoken of is directly connected back to the home. Is it any wonder that the family is under such attack today? We can certainly see Genesis 6 here in 2022. Only evil continually. We have people in office that are for taking prepubescent children and giving them sex changes. That's a problem. I don't know if you saw the nightclub that got shot up last night down in Colorado Springs. It was a, it was a gay nightclub, whatever. But they were going to have a drag show for all ages today on Sunday at 11 a.m. Listen, you do not want to be in a world where there isn't a restraining force. I'm going to get ahead of myself. Uh, don't worry, I'm about to wrap this thing up. But, but this is a big deal. This is all back to the home. People today are being led by their sight. God is not in all their thoughts. And now the home is imploding before our very eyes. Just look at what our society is becoming. God's purpose in warning us not only that our hearts would be turned away from God, but we read in Malachi 2.15, get this, and did not He make one, one flesh, wherefore one, that He might seek a godly seed. God wants us equally yoked to raise godly children for the next generation. And I hope you understand, and this is where I was going just a second ago, the only thing holding back the complete degradation of our society today are true and godly local churches. 
That's a fact. And godly families make up a godly church. This is an observable fact. That as the family has gone in America, so has the church gone. And as the church has gone, so has society gone. Listen, we got so-called churches that stand up for abortion. Same-sex marriage. Transgenderism. Name the sin. We, listen, I'm probably a little bit more plugged into Georgia because that's where I'm from. But I was watching the election down there in Raphael Warnock. Maybe you know the name. The man is a Democrat pastor. And in his church, they are for abortion. A pastor. That's a problem. The Bible says we're to be salt of the earth. But once we compromise on God's requirements, we have lost our savor. We have lost our distinctiveness and our effectiveness. And we become a Christian by name only. Jesus said in Matthew 5.13 that the salt which has lost its savor, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. And I know i got to finish, but notice how God deals with this in verse 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy the man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. You see, God did not overlook their compromise. God didn't say we can find a way to work this out. God didn't say we can deal with this. We, we can come up with a solution. No, God said that He was going to destroy their society. Destroy them. Because what they were doing was destroying their society. And guess what? That's what's destroying our society today. And God is going to bring judgment once again, just as He did back then. So how are you living your life? Are you living your life as you choose? Taking what you choose? Or are you living your life for God? Are you living according to your will or are you living according to God's will? Are you being led by the lust of the eyes or are you being led by God's Word? Take heed. Take heed. Because if you're going about your life apart from God, hear me well, you will corrupt yourself. And you will invite God's judgment upon your life. Let's pray.